So when I was uh, 24, Leslie and I lived in Fort Worth. I was on staff at the Hills as the college minister. And if you were around in 2004, you may remember the tsunami that hit Southeast Asia. And tens of thousands of people lost their life in moments. Well, when that happened, it happened around, I think, the day after Christmas in 2004. One of the members of the church, the Hills, that I worked at, was this guy named Larry Buck. And he was just like a member. Uh, He owned a construction company, good dude, godly dude. And he, like a lot of you, saw the news that was coming out of Southeast Asia. But God kind of stirred in Brother Larry the sense that he should do something about it. So Brother Larry bought a plane ticket to Sri Lanka, the hardest hit country of all of Southeast Asia. And he thought, because of the conditions after the tsunami, that he had a very good chance of not coming back, that he was going to die. He had never been to Asia. But he felt God call him to do this, so he flies to Southeast Asia, and he um, lands in the capital of Sri Lanka, Colombia, And he gets a taxi and says, take me to the hardest hit area of this country. So they take him to the southern tip of Sri Lanka to a place that was devastated to this village that used to be a village called Samagama where 90% of the people had either been killed or injured severely and all the village was destroyed. And Larry Buck tells the people that he meets there the church that I'm a part of will give a million dollars and come over and volunteer lots of hours to help rebuild your city. Uh, the problem is, Brother Larry hadn't run that by anybody at the hills. <laughs> True story. <laughs> so he comes back <laughs> and tells, Hey guys, I kind of wrote this check. I'm looking to you all to cash. And one of the reasons I believe in church... Today, it's because I watched the church do exactly that. Raise a million plus dollars and send a hundred plus people over there over the course of the next few years. And because I was the college minister, uh, and because college students are often able to do a lot more, they have a lot more availability than other people, I led with Leslie, we led campaigns over there for the next couple of years. And that first time we went, it's just a few months after the tsunami. And I I just want to show you some of the things that we saw. This This was everywhere along the coast. Because as the people were finding victims of the tsunami, there wasn't a way to properly bury or acknowledge them. So they just had to count. And they would spray paint the numbers on these rocks on the beach. And we did a lot of work. It was backbreaking as we were just clearing all the debris, all the stuff that had happened when a tsunami happens. But this is the one that bothered me the most. I cannot get this out of my head. It is a little girl's shoe on the beach on a Sunday morning. This little girl was there one moment and gone the next. 
There are movies made about the tsunami and Leslie and I still can't watch them. Because of this. It is one thing to think about the problem of evil and suffering. It is a very different thing to hold a little girl's shoe. I've told you as we go through the Gospel of John, I'm going to show you some of the greatest, strongest criticisms against Christianity because I think Christianity can more than stand up to it. And the one that I want to show you today is based on that. It actually goes back not as far as you might think. It goes back about 250 years. And it is this, what we consider today, an unwinnable argument against the existence of God, or at least God as we understand Him. It goes back to 1755 and an earthquake and a tsunami. In Lisbon, which is the capital of Portugal, in 1755, on a Sunday morning as well, Lots of people were Christians, so almost everyone in Lisbon was at church. And an earthquake that today would measure at about a 9.0 on the Richter scale devastated the city of Lisbon. Entire streets were split with 15 feet gaps, both deep and wide. People were falling into the ravines. 40,000 people lost their lives with the earthquake. And then the tsunami And it rocked Europe. It rocked all of these Christians in Europe. And and everybody's trying to make sense of it. And this is the first time in intellectual history that people begin to say, because of the suffering in the world, there must not be a God. One of the people who helped kind of lead this charge, even though he was not an atheist himself, he also wasn't really a Christian, was a guy named Voltaire. And he was responding to all the ideas of uh, people being, you know, saying the kind of cliche things like, they're, you know, Lisbon must be more evil than other places or God just needed another angel. You know, the kind of stuff that makes us like cringe today. He was one of the first people to respond and he did it by writing a poem that was like 40,000 li- 40, lines long and people still think about this poem today because it is one of the first times people, someone said, because of evil, I got a problem with God. Because in the ancient world, people, our ancestors were much more modest than we were. They believed that uh, we're, the, we're the first kind of generations over the last 250 years to believe that if there is an infinite God who is infinitely wise and greater than us, He might have a good reason for the world being the way it is that because we are finite and limited in our understanding, cannot understand. But it, since the Enlightenment, we've kind of grown too big for our britches. And we believe that if there is a God, we ought to be able to understand his ways. And therefore, since the world is the way it is, there must not be one. Well, Voltaire is one of the first people who helped describe this with his poem. Let me just read a couple of lines. Oh, can you impute a sinful deed to babes who on their mother's bosom bleed? Was there more vice and fallen Lisbon found than Paris where voluptuous joys abound? Was less debauchery to London known, where opulence, opulent luxury, luxurious holds the throne? When the earth gapes my body to entomb, I justly may complain of such a doom. 
And this poem was electric. It was seen as kind of a checkmate against God and the problem of evil. And to be honest, he's got a point. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, let me tell you some of the stuff you believe. You believe God can heal the sick. You believe God can part the seas. That God can raise the dead. And yet, there's a lot of sick people. There's a lot of unparted seas. There's a lot of people dying. And if you have any kind of heart, and I think you do, you ask questions like, where are you, God? And while we're at it, why did you make the world the way you did? Why is it like this? And you know, if you grew up in church, you know some of the answers. Like God gives us all free will. We have choice. We have freedom. But is that it? Does God not bear some responsibility in this? And the Christian story is, yes, he does. God bears responsibility in this. He made the world this way. So why and where is he in it? If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John chapter 4. Last week, we saw Jesus have this epic conversation with this woman who had been married five different times, who was born on the wrong side of what the Jews called their side of the tracks. She was a, um, a woman. Jesus has this epic conversation with her. She says she wants life that will satisfy. And so Jesus immediately goes to the places in her life where she's trying to get that satisfaction with diminishing returns. And then, immediately after he has this conversation with her, Jesus does this in verse 46 of chapter 4. Once more, Jesus visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. John wants you to know, he's back at the first place his first sign happened, his first miracle happened. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus says, unless you see, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus tells him, you will never believe. And I get this guy here, because his son is dying. And Jesus seems to pause here and say something about faith. And the, the guy is like, sir, just come heal my son before he dies. And go, go, Jesus replied, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired at the time when his son got better, they told him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then his father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming back Judea. This guy comes to Jesus, desperate as a father, and Jesus says with words, your son is healed. If you've been paying attention, you shouldn't be surprised, because Jesus is the word of God become flesh. In him all things were made, nothing was created without him. And so with only words, Jesus heals this son. And because of this sign, this guy and his whole household believe. The Gospel of John tells us this is his second sign. Hold on to that. 
In every gospel, all four of the stories of the life of Jesus in the New Testament, in every gospel, there's a section where Jesus does these kind of things. He heals the sick, casts out evil spirits, brings even dead people back to life. But John tells these stories differently than all the other gospels. There's more character development. There's more of uh, Jesus talking. But John does something else. He presents these as eyewitness stories. So, for example, what time did Jesus heal the boy? One. That's right. One. Uh, I, I told you a few weeks ago, one of the things that trips us modern people up is we hear details like that, and we're used to that in modern fiction. But in the ancient world, there was no kind of fiction that told details like this. John is not trying to present a nice myth. He's trying to present this as a court case to you, the audience, to let you see this really happened. These are people who are telling us this is their interaction with Jesus. This is how he did it. This is when he did it. But John is also trying to show us something about why Jesus is doing what he's doing. And all the Gospels do this. So later on, one of the first followers of Jesus, a guy named Peter, is going to describe what he saw Jesus do in this section of his ministry this way. In Acts chapter 10, Peter says this. He's testifying about what Jesus did. He says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. That word is dunamis. Let me hear you say dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite, power. God gave, anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good, and watch this, healing all those who were under the power of the devil. His dunamis is greater than that dunamis. He has power to heal us from the power of the devil because God was with us. We don't spend in the modern world a lot of time thinking about the devil, but we live under his influence. For, for, my, for people my age and older, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about. We think of him like this you know, red man in a little suit with pitchfork and horns. It might be helpful for you to realize that the fastest, one of the faster growing religions among women who are younger in America is witchcraft, Wiccan. It might be helpful for you to realize that younger generations are often likely to believe in demons and not angels or God, which is a bit like having the gravy and no biscuits. Like, you got that stuff, but you don't have the good stuff, you know? In this section of the Gospel of John... What you're seeing is Jesus' power to do what only Jesus can do for people under the power of Satan. And it is hard in our disenchanted world to realize we are all under the power of Satan. And that's why Jesus has this conversation next, the way he does. If you have your Bibles, I really want you, instead of just reading it on the screen, pull this out. Because this, uh, I want to ask you, do you have verse 4, for example? That should get you to... Read it there. Okay. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there, it, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. 
Does anybody have verse 4? Okay. There's a verse 4 in your Bible. Look in your footnote. I'm just going to read it from the footnote. Here's what it says. And they would wait for the moving of the, the waters. For time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the water. The first one into the pool, after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever diseases they have. Does anybody have that in your footnote? Okay. We're going to do a series after Easter on the Bible. But what I want you to see here is that your Bible is not ever trying to trick you or lie to you. Uh, that is an additional thing that a scribe a few hundred years later wrote in to try to explain why people were gathered around the pool, the legend that was happening around. But it wasn't in the, ancient, the earliest ancient manuscripts. So that's the scene. People believed that there was an angel that would stir the waters and the first one in the pool would get healed. And so what happened is all these people with illnesses and sicknesses would congregate around the pool and Jesus approaches and sees one who had been there for an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. And he asked him, do you want to get well? So this legend that an angel will stir the waters and people will get healed explains why this guy has been coming here for four decades. And Jesus sees him and cuts to the heart of things. Do you want to stay like this? And he immediately calls into question the things that the guy is trusting in. He is calling... Because everybody's gathered around this. And guess what? The water sometimes stirs. And we don't know why it did. Maybe it's an angel, but maybe it was the wind. Maybe there was just some kind of movement that rustled the waters. And all these people with disabilities would rush in the water... And most of them, nothing happened. Maybe all of them, nothing happened. But this guy stays there for four decades. Because he has hope. And it's not working out. And I love what Jesus does. Because he does it to all of us. He did it to the Samaritan woman and now he's doing it to this man. He calls out our false hopes. Our false protectors. Our false messiahs. Or false saviors. And the guy doesn't even ask Jesus to heal him, right? He has no idea who Jesus is. Jesus takes the initiative. And by the way, aren't you glad? It's, this story reminds me that God does not have to wait on us to ask for help before He helps someone. He takes the initiative. There are times in my life, there are times in your lives when you're not looking for God. But that does not mean God has stopped looking for us. And Jesus asked this question. Do you want to get well? By the way, Jesus doesn't strike me as particularly kind here or nice. And the guy doesn't answer Jesus' question. It's a pretty direct question. He says, do you want to get well? And he's like, man, you know, the problem is all these other lame crippled people are faster than me. That's what he says. I can't get in in time. He's been there for 38 years and he's trying to make something happen that he is incapable of making happen. This is a major theme in the Bible. 38 years of suffering. God is going to set everything right, Christians believe. But not yet. Sometimes people suffer for years. Maybe you have. 
And we Americans, we don't like that. We want what we want when we want it. A lot of y'all know of Yakov uh, Smirnov, who is the Russian comedian who immigrated from Russia a few decades ago. If, if you want to see a show, he's you know in Branson all the time now, so you can go hear him. But when he first came to America, he said one of the more shocking things was going to the grocery store. He's walking along in the grocery store and he sees instant orange juice. It's orange juice powder that you just take water and add it and instant orange juice. And then he goes down the next aisle and he sees powdered milk. It's just powder and you take water and instant milk. And then he goes to the next aisle and he sees baby powder and he thinks, what a country. (laughs) We Americans want what we want when we (laughs) want what we want when we want it. And this guy's problem is our problem too. We get angry with God because we want Him to do what we want when we want it. But that's not how God works. So Jesus asked him, what do you want? Do you want to get well? And he responds by telling Jesus, what I could really use, honestly, is help getting in the pool. Here's the thing. The Gospel of John is trying to show us over and over again. Your strongest desires are probably not your deepest desires. Because if Jesus would have given this guy exactly what he asked for, it wouldn't have worked. Somewhere along the way, he lost the reason why he was trying to get in the pool in the first place. Jesus asked, do you want to get well? And he's like, can you just help me get in that pool? Now listen, I know this seems silly, but I've seen this all the time in my life and yours. There are God-given desires that we have that are good and noble desires. But where we go to get those needs met often break us. For example, there's, a, 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 there's something in you that wants to be loved and accepted. That's a God-given desire. But if you look for it in the wrong people, in the wrong places, you will not find what you want. Not ultimately. There's a God-given desire for significance to live a life that matters. And I've seen this happen so much. People want to live a life that makes a difference. But we don't feel like we're doing that well enough. And so we begin to curate an image of someone who looks like they're living a meaningful life. And we go home at night. And you have maybe all the likes you could want on social media. But there's this hollowness in your life. In your soul. Because you're not going to get what you want from where you're going to where you're going. There are pools. This seems so silly here in the story of this guy who only wants to get in the pool. But there are all kinds of pools we go to. And maybe your pool is money. I know a lot of Jesus followers who are way too concerned about their stuff. And maybe you have to learn this the hard way. But a lot of us are drowning in the pools that we chose. And maybe we're even blaming God for those not working. Because we thought God was going to run our playbook. And Jesus says, get up. I love how direct he is. Get up. And the guy gets up. And by the way, he's not interested in getting the pool anymore. Jesus asks him the question, do you want to get well? Do you want to get healed? 
And I think he asked this question because he had noticed something. Some of y'all have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption. It's a movie about a prison for violent offenders. And it won, you know, Academy Awards, all that stuff. About life inside Shawshank. And one of the prison inmates was a guy named Brooks who had killed a man back in 1905 and he'd been sentenced to life in prison. And after 50 years in prison, Brooks, who had made a decent life for himself inside, was released on parole. And at first he did not want it. In fact, he never wanted it. He almost killed a man to stay inside. But he gets released and after a few weeks, Brooks takes his own life. And when the word reaches back to the inmates in Shawshank, Morgan Freeman, who plays the inmate Red, is describing to the other guys why Brooks did that. And he says, these prison walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them, and then after enough time passes, you begin to depend on them. Brooks was an institutionalized man. And this is what happens with our own lives. At first we hate the brokenness in our life. But over time, I've seen this in me and in you, we begin to get used to it. We begin to depend on it. What Jesus is doing in this moment today, we would call an intervention. And look at what Jesus gets from the man. He says, do you want to get well? And the guy doesn't say anything, but I want to get in here. But it's just not working. All Jesus gets from him is what I've been trying to do isn't working. And that's all Jesus needs. I want you to see, this isn't, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Holy One of God. This isn't, you know, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. This is what I'm doing is not working. And that's all Jesus needs. And what I want you to see is the Gospel of John is trying to tell you this on two different levels. One is personal. Jesus is going to heal this guy once he realizes the wells he's going to aren't working. And the second is cosmological. Jesus isn't just going to heal this guy. He's going to heal all of it. And this is the second this is the third sign. A sign points to something beyond the sign. Sometimes we have dogs and sometimes when you point, the dog only sees your finger. John is trying to get you to see what Jesus is pointing at. One of the ironies of the Gospel of John is that people are always demanding miracles. But they never can see them or accept them when they occur. In fact, this is a sign. Jesus heals this paralyzed guy. And all the religious people can see later in this chapter is a breaking of a religious rule. One of the things John wants us to know is that faith precedes sight. And this section of the Gospel of John is of Jesus' power, if you can see it, to deliver us from the power of those who live under the devil. And that brings me back to that tsunami in Sri Lanka. So... For a week, all we did was clear up debris. That's all we did. 
And a lot of us had a real existential crisis because every, so many people, everybody had lost family, friends. There was so much like despair and sadness. And we're dealing with the suffering of the world, not in some book, but in faces of real people. And because 99.9% of that country is Theravada Buddhism, which is a kind of Buddhism, um, there's very few Christians. And so on Sunday mornings while we were there, we would go, you know, 20 miles away to this church, which was the only church within, you know, a, a huge area. And it wasn't Protestant, it wasn't Catholic, it was just Christian. These are only Christians and we would gather together and worship Jesus with them. And during this time, on our first Sunday there, there was a blind woman who came to one of our elders at the hills, a Church of Christ elder, was at the hills, and he went with us to Sri Lanka. And this blind woman, there was a time when the church was praying for each other, this blind woman comes up to Brother Bill New and says, will you pray for me? And this is a picture of this happening. I don't think I took this picture. I had no idea what was about to happen, was about to happen. I was just, you know, we were taking pictures because it's our first time really out of the country. And this blind woman has Brother Bill and others pray for her. And afterwards, she could see. It was a miracle. I did not plan on that happening. Frankly, I did not want that to happen. But my hand to God, church, that happened. And it did not make my life easier. It actually opened up a season of, a really hard season. One, because Leslie is a first generation Christian. She's only been a Christian for a few years. She reads this kind of stuff in the Bible. She's like, yeah, of course this happens. And I'm like, I went, I went to school. I got a Bible degree. I know seven reasons why God can't do that. That's a, a real sentence I actually put together and throwing at my wife, you know? <laughs> it was one of the most difficult seasons in Leslie and I's marriage. She didn't have a problem with it, and I had a huge problem with it. And maybe it's the same one you do. I think it's a legitimate problem. Why'd you do that, God? And not heal Richard. My friend who just died from juvenile diabetes. Is that really more important than him? Or all the other people that I loved and cared about who are sick and dying? Why? Why that? In fact... That same day, the same elder prayed for this guy. This little boy who has a heart murmur. And we come back the next time, we come back a, a few months, like a year later. And that blind woman can still see. And that little boy has died. What do you do with this? The last 20 years of my life have been trying to make sense of that moment. I didn't believe in miracles before that. I do now. And every hospital bed, I've been to hundreds of hospital beds, dozens of funerals, 
And I've thought about this moment every single time. And I don't have a better answer for you than the gospel of John. What John is trying to do. Because Jesus does not come and give us a pat theology. He gives us himself. He does not avoid the suffering of the world. He enters into it. He participates in it. And John is telling you he does these kind of things as a sign. A sign, which is not just for the people that it happens to, but for all the people who are watching and can follow what the sign is pointing to. In other words, God let me see that blind woman get healed because he wants me to know there is a day coming where there will be no more blindness. God shows us in the Gospel of John this paralyzed man getting healed because he wants us to know there is a day coming where there will be no more paralysis. God lets us see in the Gospel of John, Lazarus come back from death, because He wants us to know there will be a day coming when death itself will die. And John tells us all these signs, there, there are seven of them. Seven. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, seven. John is right. It's a work of art, right? He's had decades to think about this. And he's letting you know, Jesus is coming, pointing to a new creation. This is what the sign is pointing to. A good future of God. You know, every world religion, every world religion has to say, we don't know why the world is the way it is. I don't know why God lets the world be the way this is, with, with pain and suffering. Christians, we, awful, we also have to say that. We don't know why. But there's one other thing Christians get to say, and it's pretty important. We know that God hates it too. When 2004 happened... You may have seen some of the articles that came in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and, and things about, well, this proves, all these people dying, this proves that there is no good God with all, who's all-powerful. Lots of articles like that were coming out. And there's a theologian I really like named David Bentley Hart who wrote a book called The Doors of the Sea about the problem of evil and suffering and the goodness of God. And if this is something that you struggle with, I do recommend David Bentley Hart's book. But at the end of it, when he's addressing the tsunami and the sadness, and my own question of holding that little girl's shoe, here's what David Bentley Hart says. You know, the world is broken. And until the final glory, the world remains divided between two kingdoms where light and darkness and life and death grow up together and await the harvest. And in such a world, our portion is charity, our sustenance is faith, and so it will be until the end of days. But as for comfort when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God. I see the face of his enemy. Every sign John shows you is not a miracle to show you how powerful Jesus is or the, you know, how good he is at magic tricks. Every miracle John shows you is an assault on destruction and devastation. It's an assault on decay. It's an assault on injustice. It's an assault on disease and it's an assault on death. If you think of miracles primarily as Western Enlightenment people have thought of as if it's a Proof of his power. 
you're going to miss what it really is. Because it's not, Jesus' signs are not a suspension of the natural order. Do you get that? They're a restoration of what the natural order was always meant to be. He's not suspending the natural order. He's restoring it. For all of us who live in this fallen, broken, heartbreaking world, for all of us who are suffering and waiting on God to act, this is God's activity. These are the signs of a good and beautiful God who is one day going to heal the whole universe and us along with it. This is what the world will one day be, the sign that it is pointing to. In Revelation 21, when heaven and earth are one, And there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death, no more cancer, no more dying. This is what the world is one day going to be. And until that day, we hope and we believe.